All right, welcome back, everybody, to the King's Table Podcast. Uh, this is the OG King's Table Podcast. Just so you know, it can only be found on YouTube. There are only four people that started the original King's Table Podcast. This is the only one. So please make sure you search on YouTube and look for our names and subscribe to the only King's Table Podcast. Um, anyways, I'm joined here with my good, good friends, Maddie Atchison, Mike Ayala, and of course, Aaron Amujastegi. Um, we have a really great conversation today, but it is Thanksgiving weekend, and we are at the King's Table celebrating this week. So before we kind of get into a good topic of conversation, um, let's go around the table, guys, in good order. What are you thankful for for this year? Uh, Maddie, why don't you start, brother? Mm. I mean, I'm always sitting in gratitude most of most of every day, but we're we're going through a kind of a family shift. I think this will tie in a little bit actually with our conversation today. But uh, just the, the idea of the world shifting, our family going through a major shift with um, you know, my my grandparents and kind of our patriarchs and matriarchs of our family passed last year. So we're actually starting new traditions. We're kind of shifting some of the things that we've been used to doing for so many years with traditions and kind of resetting the table a little bit. So we're excited about that. And talking on that line of shift, I shared it with you this morning, but we're expecting baby number three coming into our world uh, for the Aitchison squad. So we got a shift with family traditions, a shift with how many people are going to be in my household. I'm just grateful for all the people that I'm surrounded with um, you know, in my life right now. And just so many, so many challenges over the last, like last year was one of the hardest years of my life for a lot of different reasons. And, and just coming out the other side, just seeing who was in my corner, who supported me, what I grew into through some of those challenges, um, and, and where things are at right now, just feeling super, super grateful. So you don't know if you're gonna have to change the hat as a girl dad hat anymore? Not yet. Not Not yet. yet. I'm I'm keeping fingers crossed for some boy energy, but you will always be a girl dad. I guess no matter oh, what, you'll always be a girl dad. I remember when our fourth baby was on the way, people said, Do you want it to be a boy or a girl? And by then I had three girls and I said, you know what? If it's a girl, that's fine. Because we've done this. My whole house is pink, everything. It'd be like our life will won't change a bit and and the baby will just like come right in and we'll never have to buy another thing. That's right. And if it's a boy, everything changes, but it'll be a fun change. So I didn't so people are like, do you want a boy or a girl? Didn't matter to me anymore. Yeah. I, I thought for sure I was taken over. Uh, I'll go next on uh, gratitude, Steph. The, I feel like we should actually be like slicing our turkey and eating our, our turkey right now. The, because as people are listening to this, you're probably looking at all the Black Friday emails I'm sending you, trying to get you to subscribe to all my services and, all, and un, <laughs> unsubscribing to everybody else and just totally... <laughs> Full. So by the time you guys hear this, Thanksgiving was yesterday. But um, you know, the my last couple years have been a whirlwind, and there's been of stress and struggle. And when Maddie talks about his last year being rough, like I'm in the middle of a lot of that. But man, a year ago, my daughter Maddie. So what I'm the most grateful for is my daughter Maddie has her life back because 18 months ago she was in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk. She couldn't wear socks and shoes. She couldn't eat. She had a horrific disease that people said was incurable. And earlier today, she was down here at my office in her car because she has her license now and she was working on her sticker business. 
And um, she had a company just pay her $850 to make TikToks for for, uh, for them. She's 16 years old. She's getting an extra 850 bucks this, this month for, for, for talking about someone else's brand on her TikTok. Um, so anyway, I'm grateful she got her life back. Uh, that sometimes that for whatever reason, like she got to be the one out of a thousand that was able to get cured from this incurable disease. And so the, I don't take that lightly that um, not everybody was as lucky as us, uh, but I have to stay grateful for that we were that lucky. It's amazing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions and of course larger deals and paydays all around we call this deep sales and linkedin has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of linkedin sales navigator right now our millionaire mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try linkedin sales navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast that's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial let linkedin sales navigator help you sell like a superstar today just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started mike big big transition year for us i'm i'm really grateful you know, again, just all the challenges and everything going on in the world. And when you really just look around, it's like, man, we're so fortunate. We're so blessed. Um, it's a, it was a big transition year for us with, you know, our daughter. She's been overseas for six months. She's coming home in a few weeks. And Dylan got married this year. And Tim's got a pretty serious relationship and empty nesting. And, you know, I kind of went through this little funk for a little bit where it was like, Man, everything that we've done, our like our entire adult life has been building businesses, buying real estate, and raising kids, right? And it's like I kind of went through this little period of time earlier in the year where I was looking back and I'm like, man, I feel like I left a lot on the table. But I look back and you know, we we did it. Like our kids have seen the world. Um, my kids have actually been to more countries than I have at this stage. Like they're functioning adult humans. Um Man, it's really it it it's easy for us to get like, you know, in the doldrums and God, the economy and interest rates and foreclosures and housing and all, you know, three of my key employees quit and all the stuff. And you just look around and it's like, man, I'm so freaking grateful that we have health. You know, I haven't lost any of my children. I haven't, you know, I'm I'm married to a woman that in May it'll be 25 years. Like it's really, really hard. Um, to not be freaking grateful and thankful. And I'll say lastly, like, I mean, just even being able to do this with you guys, what, what an amazing freaking time that we live in that we can be, I'm in Phoenix and Aaron's in Austin and you guys are in Sacramento right now. And, and we can just do stuff like this and just speak our mind. Like the fact that we can just say whatever the hell we want to say, 
Um, I don't know if that episode on the dogs ever aired, like, you know, people identifying as dogs, but um, nope. we can say whatever we want to say. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm Maybe we'll relaunch grateful. it on our YouTube page. We'll do the, <laughs> we should. We'll we see have spaces as we were having the conversation. Controversy that can get us going viral. Get all the, <laughs> that. All the hard we'll just looking to cancel us. That'll get us viral. Yeah, we will get some hate. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. I'm just thankful, man. We actually live in the best country that maybe has ever existed. And, and I just, don't want to forget that. We have so much opportunity. Well, I'm, I'm thankful <clears throat> for so many things this year. I think for me, the holiday season is actually the busiest season. Um, and it's really quite hard from a work perspective to slow down. But it's just, it's such a good season for me to remember how graced we are. How, how blessed we are with our intellect and our capacity and our capability and our relationships to just sit back and remember like, man, there's somebody that's just gracing you and has, has their hand, uh, you know, on your back, pushing you forward. And I just feel that this season a lot. And as many punches as we took the last year or two, just to have come out of it in a way that is like, wow, man, I can't believe I survived that. And I can't believe I survived it in the way I did. It's just like mind blowing. Um, and just to celebrate how, how graced and how blessed we are. Um, and I think that this last year, I really am super grateful for my wife's schedule because, uh, no matter how dark and how rough the world is, she's just the light in our house and our family and, and it just keeps smiling. Um, and so I'm really lucky to have that for sure. And, and we can be intense guys and trying to chase our mission, our dreams. And, you know, it's nice to have that sort of maternal energy in the house to kind of calm us down and fit remember what's important and so that's what this season's all about i'm super grateful for the the three of you and all the people behind the scenes of the king's table aj and tim and all the all the different team members that support us and making this magic happen all the listeners that are supporting us here as well and you know this has just come come into inspiration from us and a couple of phone calls and boom here we are doing this and it's been super fun. So um, hope everyone's getting a lot of benefit from it. So let's get into some fun topics today. You know, the world is changing. Uh, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, a few months, so many different topics of conversation about these things. Fundamentally, we just keep saying that the world is shifting underneath our feet and there's so many different trends that that is uh, exposing itself. We've talked about commercial real estate. We're talking about consumer behavior. We've talked about housing. We've talked about how people commute and move and work from home and all of these things. And so maybe we start with that today. And what other trends are we observing that are causing some of these shifts? Um, right before we started recording, Mike, you were talking about cars and we were, you know, Maddie and A were lucky enough to see each other this morning. We, we got to hang out and have some coffee and break bread and you know, we were talking about commercial real estate, and man, there's just, you know, the work from home, how is that going to affect? And, you know, Mooch, you said last week, I'm going to bet against commercial real estate over a 10 year period of time, because I just don't see it coming back. So just let's continue this dialogue. Um, you know, AI is at the forefront of the conversation, people's productivity using AI is really going to shift this and how people think about um, productivity and the global workforce and all those things. So I'm creating a broad umbrella 
let's go where we want to go. Um, Mikey, why don't you kind of get us going and we'll go where we go. Well, it, it's interesting, you know, as, as humans, and I, I kind of said this in what I was grateful for, but we live in such an amazing time. And I think things are moving so freaking fast right now that most of us, um, probably present company included, but you know, the majority of Americans probably don't even know what's happening in front of us. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about SpaceX's launch. And um, what what's the big the the big one uh, that ju- um, that just launched Starship Starship yeah, Starship. So if you go back to Starship three or four months ago when it launched and it blew up and everybody's like, Elon Musk is a failure. <laughs> he failed. Yeah, and I'm just like sitting here thinking about the audacity and also the stupidity of of human beings sitting here thinking that like, I mean, Elon Musk is over here like gathering data. You know, this is a win because every time something, I mean, I was just watching that. And when you see like all 30, yeah, you see all 30 of these, um, you know, rockets like firing and they're like, every time we get a little bit better and more data. But when you look at like half the population, they're like, Elon Musk is an idiot and, you know, his technology doesn't work and this thing blew up and it wasn't successful. And it just makes me realize like, I think things are progressing so fast in front of us. And we're just sitting back watching half of it happen. And as smart as like even we are, I think we have to like, or maybe not smart, but like on top of it and connected. And we're just, you know, have a lot of friends that are maybe smarter than us too. But I think we just have to hold on for dear life right now because I think things are moving exponentially. And I'm going to go kind of just, I don't know, this is almost Joe Dispenza here for a second, but I was working with a coach over the last few years. His name's John Ryan. He taught me so much. But even the idea of time speeding up. John Ryan, I said, man, I feel like time is just actually actually speeding up. And I remember my grandparents saying, you know, as you get older, things go faster. And Dr. Ryan said to me, he said, Mike, I think that there's an argument to be made that things are actually speeding up. Because Mm. there's more people, there's more energy, um, things are progressing faster. And he said, we, time, time might actually be speeding up in, in the realm of, of the quantum because of so much happening. And I'm not saying that it is or isn't. And I don't think that's really the premise of, of what we really want to get into today. But just the fact that technology is going so fast. Um, and Aaron, what I was bringing up, I was listening to your guys' pod last week, which was awesome, by the way. And when you were talking about cars and all the loans that were that are defaulting and and the challenges and stuff, I was just sitting back thinking to myself, there's probably a day coming sooner than what we all realize where it doesn't even matter. Just like what you were talking about home ownership, like home ownership doesn't matter at some level because we're becoming yep. a renter nation. And car ownership probably isn't gonna matter. Um, and when you look at like this generation that's up and coming, when we think about the cost of ownership and what it costs to get new tires and insurance and all registration and all these fixed costs, I think this whole next move, whether it's intentional, non-intentional, or it's just another, um, you know, I guess, uh, cataclysmic event that propels us towards this even further, which I think COVID was. I actually think that, you know, if, if we do see car defaults go up to 20, 30%, people are probably just going to not buy cars. And and the last thing that I'll say, and then I'll throw it back to someone else. 
I'm sitting at an industrious building in Tempe right now. We're, we're here for Thanksgiving with family and I have a membership. And the last time I was here, I was in a conference room with my team and I was overlooking a four-story parking garage that was completely empty. And I'm just looking out over all of this really expensive land in the cities that are just full of parking garages. And now we're full of office buildings too that are, you know, what the hell are we going to do with these? But it got me thinking like when I was here a year ago, there's all this valuable land that exists. And really, whether it's public transit or whether it's technology that allows us to get into car sharing, you know, time sharing or just ride sharing, whatever it is, when Elon Musk rolls out completely self-driving and we can just, you know, share and we don't have to pay fixed insurance and we don't have to worry about going. Imagine how much money we spend just with like house managers and and trying to think about assistance, like going to change oil in our cars and all of these things that are just things that consume us. And in reality, just kind of circling back to that World Economic Forum article, by the year 2030, you'll own nothing and you'll enjoy it. When I first read that, and I've said this a couple of times on the pod, when I first read that, um, you know, in 2020, I was like, this is crazy. This is conspiracy theory. This will never happen. Like an, uh, this dystopian idea that people are going to not want to own anything. I actually think that a good percentage of Americans would be completely happy owning nothing. And the other side of that argument is somebody's going to own all of that. Aaron's going to own a fleet of 100 Teslas that are going to be ride sharing everybody else around. And so I just want to get on the right side of that too. But technology is advancing so fast that I think we just have to hold on for dear life and and just come back to the fundamentals on what we know and invest in what we invest in, what we understand. But then, and again, I'll just kind of wrap it up with the Elon Musk thing. People think he's an idiot because his rocket ship blew up and he's like, I'm testing things real time. And I think, you know, who's the idiot, I guess is the bottom line. Yeah. Mooch? I think, I think, well, Mike's, I wrote down a couple things, you know, in Vegas, they knock down casinos to build new casinos. And I know when, when Mike's looking out over that parking garage or even these office buildings, there does come a point where it will be more cost effective to knock down a building and build something fresh than try to rehab it, right? When we talked about like, so old offices, oh, could we rehab them and convert them to multi? If we knocked them down and started over and, but like some of the properties that are for sale are, you know, lots are 45, 50, 60 million in some of these bigger cities. So like, I think there's a, there's reality of that, of, of remembering like, yes, there could be things that just maybe the solution is they just knock it down and start fresh again. And I remember the first time I saw a casino get knocked down in Vegas, I was thinking that's unfathomable. Why would they knock down a building that's worth so much? It's because, because they were, well, let's do this example. If an office is at 15% occupancy, and so it's bringing in $50,000 a month, let's say, whatever. And so you knock it down and you have to spend an extra $100 million, but now your occupancy goes up to $400,000 a month or $500,000 a month because it is multifamily or something that's needed. This crazy investment pivot. The old value add used to be like, if we add stainless appliances, can we add 50 bucks a month to rent? <laughs> right? But now they, I think people have to look at offices and go, well, if we let it go to foreclosure, then we knock it down and build an apartment. What's our cash flow? look like instead. And the other thing about cars or things in general is the economy changes. Like, yeah, a lot of people don't have cars now because they can Uber. Or if you need a really nice car, you can do it on Turo. I've, I've rented some really fun cars on Turo over the last month when I've traveled. I was driving a Maserati. I got a G-Wagon. I did some different things. And it was like, it cost me nothing to get to do that for a day in comparison. 
But I remember um, I had this minivan, Honda minivan. It was a 2011 with like 200,000 miles on it. I sold it like last year. And I think my trade-in value was like seven. I think they gave me like seven grand for it. But that thing could have gone an extra 100,000 miles. And these, like, the, I guess the difference between a $700,000 car and a $200,000 car, it's not $193,000 worth. So as people like, so when people are like, oh, cars are more expensive, what do we do? I think, I think used cars will get driven longer instead of getting, you know, people will find the difference in the value of like, okay, this, this $5,000 or $10,000 car is enough. When I upgrade to that 50 or that $100,000 car, I don't get that much extra uh, in value to it. Two other like quick topics that I think um, are going to like just kind of affect this broader conversation of what's happening. I'll do a, let me see if I can share a screen really quick. I shared this to you guys in the link. I think this is pretty like special. Like if you're looking at the screen here, existing home sales drop again in October. But like the only time in history, like the, which, this chart goes back to 2000, right? Of like existing homes, of how many homes are selling, um, you know, during a month, during a year. And the only time that was slower than this was 2010, which was the absolute crisis. And we're about to like drop below that. So we will pretty soon have the fewest amount of home sales ever, volume wise. But prices aren't actually going down, right? Whereas the difference back mm -hmm. then, it was because of that. So it's not like the prices are changing, but I think it adds into that idea that I think the Fed and everyone is just getting to the point where it's like home sale, like how could they justify actually saving the housing market if prices aren't actually dropping? If the biggest problem is like people aren't actually able to move, that's like saying like, well, people have to drive used cars instead of new cars. Nobody really cares about like a, the first world problem. They're like, so wait, you have a house? Your house is good. The problem is you can't move. Like the, that's not a crisis um, that's going to get, you know, repaired and saved. So I thought, so housing is still doing what it's doing and it's going, and, and I'm like doubling down on this idea that I think it's just going to be kind of boring and slow um, with that. People will still make money in that business, but, and, but if you are struggling too, in real estate, if you're an agent or a mortgage broker and you're like, man, why is this so hard right now? Keep your head up because there's the least amount of sales now ever, right? We have the fewest yeah. amount of, of sales happening ever. Um, this is the thing that I think is actually the news of the day. Uh, Sam Altman to return to OpenAI CEO um, after, after crazy turnover. Um, chat hold, GPT, on, wanna, hold on, hold on. Before you go there, I want to ask you about the home sales thing. So what do you... So yes, we're at the bottom. So if you're in the industry, I hear what you're saying is, wait, it's there's only up from here, right? But why, if home prices are not going down, is that signaling that, and kind of going back to our conversation earlier is, does that just mean that a generation of people or a few generations of people are just saying, you know what, home ownership or getting into the market is just not important to me anymore? Yeah. I think it's cheaper to rent than buy. And so this idea of people telling you like what, when I was growing up, owning a house was like a piece of the American dream. And I just think the people that are becoming of age to buy right now, it's not, it's not a requirement. Owning a house is no longer, we can tell you, Hey, it's the quickest way to wealth, but there's plenty of people in their early twenties don't really give a crap about wealth. Yeah. Right. So the, so yeah, I think it, I think it adds that idea of renter nation. I posted a video this week that talked about, well, we're, 
We're down six million. We should have a six million units inventory shortage, and there's between one and two million units getting built. But there's 15 million vacant units in the U.S. Right, so 15 million vacant houses, but we have a six million unit shortage. So, like, what's that? So, what really happens? Well, people really need housing. They could buy any one of those vacant ones. They're just not quite as nice. We don't have we don't have a housing shortage. We have a housing shortage of like really really high end housing at really really inexpensive prices. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so it's not no one's no one needs to be homeless. There's plenty of vacant houses. So, yeah, I think it's renter nation. I think it's renter nation a little bit out of being spoiled. Um, out of like, no, plenty of houses to buy, but there's a bunch of older houses that people would rather not live in. They'd rather just like wait for something nicer yeah. uh, than the houses that we grew up in. So I thought that was like some fascinating statistics too. Well, I think too, it's I, what you're talking about is it's got to do with the narrative, right? Like the narrative growing up for a lot of people was this is the American dream, right? And yeah. so based on what narrative is being pushed out into mainstream and consumed by you know, the, the masses is ultimately what drives culture, decision-making, and or not doing certain things. And I agree. I think it, we are going towards that renter's nation. I kind of am like bucketing, the way I'm looking at all of the transformation that I think is happening right now is there's certain people that are playing chess, and then there's most people playing checkers. They're kind of just waiting to see what move happens. And then they're responding to it and driving their decisions for their life and their investments, their business, their whatever, off of what is kind of pushed on them. And then you've got the people like Elon Musk, right? Or I'll share an example of like Amazon too, Jeff Bezos. But Elon Musk is playing chess at the highest level possible. He is the one who's actually not only playing chess, but he's creating the chess board that everybody else is playing in. And so I think the the conversation that I think about is going like, whatever game I want to play, and this goes to anybody that is listening, right? Whatever game you want to play going forward, just think about not only how do you play chess at the highest level or capacity you want to play it at, but also how can you be a part of creating the dynamics of that chessboard instead of just taking the rules as they're dictated to you? And so I'll give you an example. Amazon, another example of playing chess and transforming where the world is going and how things are being done. This is a perfect example on advertising and media. So Amazon is paying $100 million to broadcast the NFL's first ever Black Friday game. But it's really a chess move to steal market share from brick and mortar stores and generate online sales. And this guy goes through and breaks it all down so Thanksgiving Day football has always been huge, right? I mean, it's been a staple of what I've always done on Thanksgiving Day. And last year's games averaged 33.5 million views, including 42 million views for the Cowboys versus Giants game, which was the most watched regular season football game of all time. 2022 average viewership for an NBA Christmas Day game, just for some context, 4.27 million. NFL Thanksgiving Day, 33.5 million. But the NFL has never done a Black Friday game because one, it's a holiday known for people leaving the house to go shopping, physical locations, brick and mortar. And two, the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961 prohibits NFL games on Fridays after 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and all day on Saturdays during the fall. This rule was implemented by Congress to protect high school and college football from seeing a decline in attendance and viewership because of Mm -hmm. the NFL. 
But Amazon decided to offer the NFL $100 million for the game. So they decided to put the game at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to skirt that rule. And here is where it gets to be an even better deal for Amazon. So this is Amazon playing chess. And ultimately, this is just one small example of how the people who are playing chess in whatever industry or bucket you want to you know, apply this to. Amazon is allowing anyone to watch. So you don't have to be a Prime member. You don't have to have a subscription. Anyone can watch this NFL game. They can, Amazon's first Thursday night football broadcast generated more Prime signups than any other three-hour window in company history. And Mm -hmm. Amazon is also reportedly charging two times more than their Thursday night football broadcast for a 30-second ad placement. So instead of on Thursday night football, you want a 30-second commercial, $440,000. Well, on Black Friday, we're going to charge you double that, $880,000. But more importantly, Amazon will leverage its new ad strategy called audience-based creative. This will enable brands to target different audience segments with different ads in the same exact time slot. So for example, according to the ad age, Bose will show three different ads using Amazon's ad technology. The first ad will feature uh, Joe Burrow and will be and it'll be delivered to non-Prime members, while the other two ads in that exact same ad slot will deliver ads, Bose ads with different products to be shown only to Prime members on their Amazon, based on their Amazon Prime search history. And here's mm. the best part. These targeted ads will also be shoppable, meaning that viewers can watch the commercial, they can place pr- the product in their cart with the click of a button, and check out without ever leaving the broadcast watching the football game. So this makes Amazon's broadcast far more valuable than a typical commercial. Brands will be able to retarget these customers after the game. Then it also gives us a view into how brand advertising could, in my speculation, will look in the future. Companies like Amazon and Apple are only going to spend more money on live sports rights and their ad targeting could change how brands market forever. So that's just one example, right? Of they're rebuilding the whole chessboard. Well, I, and, think, I think it goes, yeah, finish, Matt. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, and, and that's where I think the question comes for, is it going to be a renter's nation? Is it going to be, you know, uh, an Elon Musk nation, a Jeff Bezos nation? Who, whoever oh, it's going to be, it is changing right in front of our eyes, right under our feet. And, and if you're already listening to this podcast, if you're watching us, if you're being a part of these conversations, you're already a part of the 0.00001% of people that are actually leaning in and trying to be educated and trying to navigate what these chessboards look like. So stay tuned with us, subscribe to the channel, listen to the podcast. But that being said, right, how many people are so oblivious to any of this stuff going on, nor do they actually care And this is where I think the people that are part of these little conversations, these narratives, their reticular activating system, their brain is going to be turned on to the potential opportunities that will be on these chessboards. It's just being aware of it, right? Leaning in, learning, knowing that it's changing quickly, but there's massive opportunity coming in this next decade. I'm excited. Well, and that's the thing that like with technology changing so fast and and Maddie, you bring up such a we don't have to be Jeff Bezos. We just have to 
Like, I mean, just look at, look at, as you were saying that, look at how freaking advanced these people are to just, I mean, most of us are sitting on our couch, falling into the trap of like buying the shit on Amazon. And these guys have been thinking, yeah. And, and the reality is like, we don't have to be Jeff Bezos. We just have to think about like, how can we apply some of that into our own world? You know, Aaron, when you were talking even um, earlier about, uh, I, I forgot what triggered it in my brain, but I saw recently that I'm, I ran some cars on Turo and, and we were, you know, considering a, a tax efficient Turo fund for a little bit, decided not to just because of some of the challenges. But I saw that Uber is actually taking like a model out of Turo's playbook to where you can actually take a fleet of cars and you can rent them to Uber. So Uber doesn't even have to buy cars. The Uber drivers don't have to buy cars. Th- these big companies are solving problems. So when like Uber launched, they have all these gig drivers that want to drive, but they can't get cars. So what did Uber do? They went out and got cars and they'll finance the cars, cars for the yeah. people. But if you look at Amazon's model, and Karen and I were just talking about this the other day, like it blew up because you're just literally connecting people. Imagine having... I'm, I'm in a group called Wellspring and there's some people in there that are like, they, they have, I mean, they do like $3 million a month in coaching, teaching people how to um, like grow their businesses on Amazon. Imagine being Amazon and having like, I don't know how many millions, tens of millions of stores are on there, but imagine being Amazon, having like people like this couple that I'm thinking of that are doing $3 million a month in their own store and then teaching people how to do it. You've got an army of people that are out there trying to think about how to make their own store better on your own platform. Like you have an entire, you have a whole nation of people that are like trying to make their business better on your business platform. Like how brilliant is that? And then when I bring it back to Uber and you think about Uber, well, okay, we've got all these people that want to drive for us and make money, but the problem is they don't have cars. So Uber's like, okay, we got to go buy a bunch of cars. Well, that's really cost prohibitive. So what, what's Uber? Uber is now taking the Turo model and they're saying, hey, Mike, if you want to buy 10 cars or 50 cars or 100 cars and put them on the Uber platform, we'll connect you with our Uber drivers. And Uber doesn't have to pay anything. Like I'm providing the cars. I'm making Uber money. Get paid. Uber has, yeah, the, the, the drivers are getting paid. Uber has better insurance than Turo does. Um, it's like a wit. The brilliance of all of this, and you know, Maddie, I love that you bring it up. Like whether it's Amazon, Uber, like we don't have to. We just got to do as you're saying and look at the people that are playing chess and just see how. I mean, if I could end up being a Jeff Bezos, I'd love to. But the reality is, we can just take what they're doing and build off of it and bring it into our own model. And the last, when you said the narrative when you started talking about this in the narrative this is one thing that i've thought about the last week and mooch you said this about real estate like the fastest way to wealth is real estate that's the narrative that we've had over the last 10 or 12 years or whatever and i love the way that you two kind of just pulled that together for me but it yeah well and the reality is how many people do you know that are extremely wealthy just off of real estate. There's Actually, a much, I much... Disagree with that. Yeah, I don't think that's true. No, that's what I'm saying. That There's way, way, way more people that are wealthy because of businesses and, and you know, I mean, even just brick and mortar boring businesses. Um, yep. But even more so, like when you're talking about whether, yeah, I mean, obviously Amazon type things too, but 
very few people have been made very, very wealthy by real estate. I mean, even if you just look at the GoBundance puts out this newsletter of um, and there's, you know, they break it out by champions and then and then uh, the elite and where the spread is. And even within a community like GoBundance, which is heavy real estate, the majority of that asset is is in business. It's like business yeah, earnings. The wealthiest even- people in the group own legit businesses, right? Whereas, yeah, yeah. you know, the one to fivers are, yeah, I'm a real estate guy and da 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 da. But the, the real wealth is is in the business side of things. But I I agree with what you're saying there, which is, and I think this ties into the whole discussion here. The narrative is different now. Like Grant Cardone was talking about this the other day, and he's been somebody that has pushed the owning a house, you know, to to build wealth is the biggest sham that was pushed on most people as a part of the American dream. When we think about it. The government was pushing that narrative to really drive a lot of different industries at that time that all fit into the collective narrative that they wanted people taking action around. The narrative is is being written right now as we speak today. Like we're hearing, you know, whispers and some people starting to shout a little bit louder about certain themes and trends. But Grant Cardone said this the other day too. He's like, oh, these future generations... They, they don't want to own a house. They want to be able to, you know, rent a nice apartment with a little, you know, cute juice bar and coffee shop down in the lobby. And they want their cool little gym right on the seventh floor. And they want the rooftop, you know, deck with their market lights that they can go and hang out and bullshit with their friends on. And they want to be able to go and, you know, jet set to the next, you know, city that they want to go and check out without all of the ball and chain that comes with being a homeowner, right? So that is the narrative now that we're hearing more and more people talk about. You can see it in in younger culture in terms of what they actually value, what they give their time, because their energy, their currency right now is their time and their attention. It's really not a big emphasis on their money because a lot of the youth doesn't have a ton of money right now. But their energy they're, what they're talking about online, what they're watching, who they're spending their time with, that's currency. That, that means something to them. And I think that those narratives in those communities and what's going to drive the next boom and you know, focus in industry and economics and politics is very different than what it's been the last 30, 40, 50 years. Aaron's backdrop is a great example of this. Like lead yeah, propeller, really- prop hawk, Roddy's. Real estate rock stars. King's Table. King's Table made it. Yeah, King's Table. (laughs) Back to the the narrative, though. Like, Aaron is extremely successful in the business realm. And yes, he owns a lot of real estate. But, you know, the idea of owning... Most people that are very successful have very successful businesses... And then they start investing it in real estate as a hedge, or they scale like Aaron did, owns 800 houses. But that's not this whole narrative around what's happened even in the last 10 years is like people want to quit their jobs, people want to get out of their businesses that they think they're slaves to. And they think that real estate, the narrative has been real estate is the way to do that. And very, very few people quit their job and then go into real estate and find success. How many people do we look around and see that don't have a job and they're just barely getting by 
because real estate is their business now and they don't know how to scale that. If you didn't know how to scale your little you know, W-2 job or you didn't know how to scale your business and then you think you're going to be able to go and scale to 800 houses like Aaron did, you're sorely wrong. Aaron is a good manager. He's a good business owner. He's a good leader. And it has nothing to do with real estate. That just happens to be an asset class that he chose. And the backdrop that I was pointing out, he's got all these businesses that are yes around real estate, but Aaron is a killer business owner. Ashish is a killer business owner. Mattie is a killer business owner. It just happens to be that a lot of us are in real estate. I want I want to tie a couple of these thoughts together and see what you guys think, right? So the narrative is shifting. And Mooch, you were about to talk about Microsoft, which maybe I'll lace into this question or topic, but between Amazon, Tesla, Elon Musk, Microsoft, it's clear that the world is being driven by a few with resources. They have innovation, they have technology. You know, who who's writing $100 million checks? Only a few companies, right? And if the user base, if the consumer base is no longer wanting to consume the things that they used to want to consume in the late 1900s, like, look, the thing, I'm in the import and export business. So when you buy houses, when, when the U.S. economy is driven based on home ownership, the largest assets that people own besides their home is their furniture, the stuff in their home. They invest in their backyard. They invest in cars. Well, if that no longer exists, you're buying other perishable goods. And, and what I've seen, at least in the last 10 years, is overall quality of production and manufacturing go through the floor because you're not buying quality stuff because you're, you're, you're moving around all the time. You know, whereas your parents may have bought, let's stay with furniture for half a second, is your your parents may have bought a bedroom set that's going to last them 30 years. Now you're buying stuff that's a tenth of the cost that you're likely going to only last for two years, three years, and you're going to toss it. And you don't even care what happens to it. And so what we consume today is actually more garbage from a quality perspective than actually quality goods and services. So there's an impact to that as well. And the Amazons and the Walmarts and all these companies, I mean, you can see the quality of goods and services that we're buying, but what we're, we're buying more of it. So there's an interesting dynamic there. The other thing I want to add is, you know, all the biggest companies actually don't sell goods and services. They are actually the highway. So if you think about Tesla, yeah, he sells cars, but really he's the He's going to be an internet highway. He's going to be a data highway. He's already created his neural network of charging stations. That's a highway, right? Self-driving so semi. Amazon, Amazon is not selling products. They are the highway where buyers and sellers meet and transact, right? And so... Same, same with Aaron. And yeah, and Aaron, same thing. He owns the software. He doesn't care whether you buy or sell. He's just, he's the marketplace. These companies are the marketplace. Yeah. And so if we really are trying to skate where the puck is going, it's definitely, it's def. and we were talking about this last podcast too, is understanding what assumptions you're making, being conservative in those assumptions and not letting history's story 
write the future story because it will be a different story. And um, I think it's very fascinating, maybe spinning this to Microsoft and Mooch, we were talking about this right before we started recording. The thing that I think is really fascinating about the whole Sam Altman, you know, board ousting of Sam Altman in like 72 hours. I think that it speaks to the, well, there's an ironic thing that, that happened, right? That one of the most innovative companies in the space overnight ousted basically the face of AI. He's, he's probably not the face of AI behind the scenes, but to normal people who understand what's going on with AI, Sam Altman is leading the leading company in AI. Nobody else knows a single name about open AI except for Sam Altman's name. And they oust him in 24 hours. And what the board thought was that, well, and the information is still coming out about why he was ousted. But either way, a drastic decision was made by, I think, four people, maybe five, without Microsoft knowing. And within 48 hours, 700 of 770 employees signed a petition that says, you resign or we're all leaving. And the CEO of Microsoft, who is absolutely brilliant, absolutely playing the chess game of everybody, saying, okay, no problem. We win either way. He either stays at OpenAI or he comes to Microsoft and we'll invite everybody. And what ends up happening is that, and I think it was just today that they announced that he, co- he goes back as the CEO. They replace the board. A few people are put in place, including Microsoft. And I think that the thing that I'm taking away from this is I think it's incredibly ironic that I think it's a blessing too that the company that basically is all about tech and AI, and we talk, we were talking about work from home and the importance of being having relationships and all that. The one company that you would think is super mechanical, people survived. People came together and said, this is not what we want to stand for. We are not just about profits. We are going to support our leader. And it just kind of shows the power of people staying together, working together, the importance of connection. And it's just ironic that it was in an AI company. That is. Right? And I think the thing that I also am reflecting on is, as leaders... If your board ousted you, would your employees do the same? Ooh. Would your employee with seven? I mean, that's what, 90%? 90% of employees signed a petition, didn't say, yeah, maybe, okay. No, they signed a petition that said, if this dude leaves, we're leaving too. And that's that's a pretty high bar. That's, I mean, if you look at John Maxwell's five levels of leadership, that's pinnacle leadership, right? That's the that's the ultimate level of leadership, not just positional leadership of like, ah, whoever's in the position, I just follow them because they're in the position versus pinnacle leadership is like, no, that's my dude. I'll go to hell and high water and back. I'll, I'll be go unemployed for that I'll guy. Do, I'll go lose my, I'll quit my job for that guy. That's, that's. That says something, right? I mean, I think that's that, that's powerful for sure, and it is very ironic that it's in a you know artificial intelligence robot technology driven you know ecosystem. I think part of what that 
it really says about that ecosystem though is they know that they're actually on the forefront of changing the world. Like, cause it's not yeah. like, even though it's like an AI driven thing, they're changing the world. They're on the forefront. And like, that is, that has to be an exciting thing to be on the inside of. So we got, inter- like I got interviewed for an article this week and it was a great interview. And the article that they wrote was shit. And I said, send me the video, send me the recording of the interview. And I sent the recording of the interview to ChatGPT, and ChatGPT wrote an amazing article about it. And it was like, so a human that interviewed me did good at asking the questions, but did a horrible job at piecing it together. And in 10 seconds, ChatGPT took the transcript and made it amazing. And you, or anything about even like Amazon, right? Like you said, they have to do, have resources, but they also have to have like these amazing ideas. I, when I look in my pantry and I'm out of my butter that I put in my coffee, or I'm really on my like last two scoops, or I'm on my, oh man, I'm on my last bag of coffee in my box of coffee. I say, Amazon, reorder coffee, you know, and it does it. It says, okay, it'll be here tonight. Oh, reorder some of my butter. Okay, it'll be here tonight. Where most of the time technology is like supposed to be de-inflationary. But I think what Amazon is figuring out is I will pay more not less. They're like the, the Amazon technology isn't actually decreasing the price of my coffee. It's increasing it because I can actually reorder it while I'm drinking my coffee hands-free. And so I'm well, like, cool. It goes, it goes back to convenience, right, Mooch? It goes back to the, the generation is not going to what do I want? It's about convenience, saving me time and energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's about convenience. And so where technology used to be deflationary. And I think it is in ChatGPT's sense that the, the ChatGPT will be deflationary, but there's also points where people are going to use technology to say, hey, we can actually charge more now. Even with some of my yep. software products. We're like, hey, if it's so quick and automatic that you can get five leads in an hour instead of two leads in an hour, like my technology made it easier, but now I'm going to charge three times as much, right? That's yep. an option that software players have. And so it's pretty interesting. Maybe the first time ever technology gets to be inflationary and deflationary at the same time, depending on where it's using. But but back to, I think, just th- that topic of why I thought the Sam Altman thing was the most fantastic part was this concept that employees were the ones that made it get changed. And, the, and I think it just, it goes to show, and I really think probably maybe whoever the leader was, because of what they're doing is so fascinating and so special. Like there were, there were some people at Tesla that hated Elon, some people at Twitter that hated Elon, but most of them are freaking excited. And, and so like, yeah, so there's some people that, that don't like the leader, but they're just, they're on such cutting edge stuff. Like they literally get to go like, oh my God, it'd be like the equivalent would be like people that are like working with the astronauts trying to get to the moon. If we ever really landed on the moon, that's a whole different podcast one day. Like imagine being the guys that are trying to be a part of who's landing on the moon. You're standing behind your leader or President Bush's approval rating after with the September 11th attack went through the roof. He didn't do anything different, actually. But because he was the president and the U.S. had just been attacked, we were now like behind him. And so his approval rating went through the roof and he hadn't done anything different except for he was our president. So anyway, the fact that employees, my employees would not say, let's keep Aaron. <laughs> the best, they wouldn't. I'm going to like... They wouldn't. A couple of them, like one out of seven would, like two. I, I know who would stay, but most of them wouldn't. The, but if I was doing something more profound, 
than selling widgets? I bet they would. Mm. Mm. When we when we do that episode on the moon landing, let's make sure and discuss whether George Bush actually blew up the towers to get his rating up as well. Dude, that's a uh, Jesus. Dude, if you go, I've been down that rabbit hole and it and it stresses me out. I've, I'm very, I've got some data when we start talking 9/11 and the moon stuff. You guys are the conspiracy theorists most of the time, and I'm here's pretty anti. Here's what I have to say well, on that: If we're going down those rabbit holes, our YouTube channel ain't gonna be lasting very long, boys. That's all. I'm <laughs> yeah, those are, those are the pages I, I watch the the most, but. Yeah. The uh, anyway. So, how about you guys? Do you feel like your leaders, your I mean, your teams aren't? Are your teams are your teams giant right now? Are they big enough? I guess the people around you, whether well, whether you I have think- a big office team, a big company team, or or whoever, like the people that you're guiding in your life, if they were like, "Hey, you're getting replaced," they would say, "No, we're out." Then too. I, no. I think this is and this is good, Mike. Sorry. No, I mine will be quick. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm making that kind of impact. Number one, number two, I was just having this conversation with a partner of mine in the HVAC space as we start to roll this out. And, and when this all came out, the other side of this that I said too, is I hope that someday I build a company that is so impactful and so big that I get fired because I can no longer lead it because it's outgrown me. That's a whole other, you know, take on this too is like, I mean, I'm not, I would hope that I could continue to grow with my company, but even when a CEO gets ousted, not because they did something wrong, but just because they can no longer lead the organization. I just, I I actually told my, my partner that I was talking to, I said, if we ever build something like that, remind me, it'd be hard to remember that in times like that, but to be able to build something that's so big and so much bigger than you that you have to get replaced as bad as that day would be, it would also be really cool to just see your, you know, vision come to something so huge, which I know is different than the Sam Altman thing, but I don't, I don't think I've done anything where my employees would, you know, 90% of them would, would leave with me. I don't think so. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, this is a really good conversation. This is exactly what hit me in the face when I saw what was going on on what's today, Wednesday, like Monday, Tuesday of like, wow, what is really great mirror to me? Um, I mean, I think I've experienced a little bit of this already, although I have, I wasn't ousted, meaning we survived probably the worst of 12 years last year. And most people that were sticking around, stuck around and they didn't have any reason to stick around and work twice as hard for less pay, longer hours, and I think we have to be able to take widgets, and I think we're all in the widget business in some way, to sell something bigger than just the widget. And uh, yeah, but it's really hard. You know, you look at you look at what happened at Apple. Steve Jobs got ousted, and I don't think people left, but the company went to shit because the visionary left, and then he built it to a certain scale where. And then he passed away. And then now it's worth, I think, 10 times what it was when he passed away or something like that. So I think it's, it is a tough, there is like some precipice, Mike, that's what you're scratching at there. Is that I think it does take a founder and people to fall, people to follow the founder to a certain scale. And then 
you know, where does this, where does the founder go from there? Does the founder like move on to other things? Then do people follow him to that? I mean, Sam Altman moved from the Y Combinator to OpenAI because people thought he couldn't do both successfully. I don't know if you guys knew that, but mm. like, did he you, had to pick. Did, he got fired from Y Combinator at one point. Because probably, well, I don't know if it, in the middle of that, but in the transition, I think they told him, you need to pick one. You can't do both successfully. No, at, at one point in time, he got fired because he was a hothead, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? Even in, as like, so that's why I think for me, um, it's a really great question. It is something to aspire to. I would like to think that 90% of my team would sign a petition. And I think, am I really connecting with people or driving a vision that is worthy of them signing that petition is, yeah. is a good question. Maddie? Those are those are the two prongs, I think, right there, right? Is there's the individual impact of the leader themselves, and then there's the mission impact that people are going. I'm I'm so committed to this mission and anything that is a, an attack on this mission or this vision or anybody that is in that world that drives one decision. And I think there's another part of it, right, which is who's the who's the captain of the ship, right? Who's the who's the leader of the helm? Um, I mean, I, I had a recent experience with this, to be honest, because I was, you know, somewhat forced bought out of a couple of my hotels and all of my team stuck with me through that. They they stuck with me through that. And I asked them to do things that, you know, they didn't have to do. They shouldn't have had to do. And they did it because but those were people in my close proximity. There was a lot of other people that were somewhat under my leadership but they were sticking with the job. They were sticking with, you know, the mission and not necessarily where me, the leader of that mission at that point in time was going. So it is an interesting question, right? Because I think it makes you realize and think about more as well, if you're building a business or you're building really a team or, or community, it's how are you showing up as a leader and creating impact and, and, and creating connections and, and creating something so much bigger than just you yourself, you know, can drive alone. And I, I have, I think, go ahead. I have a question. Mooch, Mike, Maddie, do you let your team members invest with you? I don't. The, um, in theory they could, but my team members don't make enough money to be able to invest yeah. in me. The, if I, you know, when I give them end of year bonuses, if they had said, Hey, can I put it in? I'd, I'd probably find a way, but usually, usually that end of year bonus goes toward a credit card. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm double clicking on recently is this, this topic of, you know, if you're a publicly traded company, if you're a venture, you get shares, you can get stock options. Most private equity companies will call them like operating businesses, non-real estate are following a visionary or a business owner for whatever mission they're following, or they're just going there for a salary, they're investing their 401k, and that's really all the wealth they're ever going to create. And if if you're a real estate business, I observe, I see a lot of real estate companies figure this out, but it's really hard in the normal day-to-day operating business side of like, you know, you're not going to get phantom shares to everybody or stock to everybody in a privately held company. Often you're not. And so I think there's some like opportunity there to figure out how 
and not and I'm not talking about ESOPs, but I'm trying to figure out how you merge operating businesses that generate cash and real estate to help with an employee retention strategy that allows people to really build wealth long term outside of just owning is outside of just earning a salary, having a 401k, which is really where most of their pe- people make money, I guess I'll say, right? Maybe they're investing on the side, but they really don't know what they're doing. They don't really have any advantage. They're not going to be able to syndic- like be part of a syndicate that Mike Ayala puts together at 100 grand as an accredited investor, right? So if I have $5,000 a year or $10,000 a year, then maybe that's as, as much as I can invest. And so how do you create this sort of alignment beyond vision, beyond mission, in an everyday business that's just selling pipe fittings or, or you know, laying, laying railroad track or whatever the hell that ancillary business is, plumbing equipment or HVAC companies. Like, how do you kind of make that bridge? And I've been really noodling on that because I think if you look within your companies, there are definitely people that are there that are loyal, that work hard, that would go die for you. But beyond the salary 401k and all that, there's not much more. And so you're selling this vision of we're going to grow together, we're going to build wealth together, we're going to we're going to change the world together over long periods of time. But really, beyond salary 401k, it's really hard to make those commitments, right? Beyond maybe employee retention and keeping them employed. So I'd love to hear what you guys have thoughts about that. And and well, as an I, employer, is that where the puck is going? I I've said for years, your boss will never pay you enough to be his neighbor. Yeah, it's true, so, right? It's true. Yeah, it's That's a good point. And, and like, so on that note, Ashish, I, I know one example of this. There's a guy that I've done a lot of deals with over the years that they created. He was in the insurance real estate business. Um, they created a employee uh, profit sharing program. And I've borrowed probably, if not, I've probably borrowed $2 million from his employees profit sharing program over the years. Um, And he manages it. But it gets like complex because I think the reason why most people don't do it. So like even for, for me and my business, like they couldn't invest with us if they wanted to, because to Aaron's point, like, I mean, we only take accredited investors and none of my employees are accredited. So, um, I mean, you know, to make $200,000 a year, um, as an individual, uh, I don't know. It's just, and then high I think the reason, sure. well, it's a high threshold, but also you're crossing the, the, the nearest example that I can like take out of the investment world for this is like for years in the mobile home park industry, people wanted managers that lived in the park. And we kind of started doing that to begin with. But then I started seeing a bunch of problems because it's kind of like the old saying of, you know, you don't want to shit where you eat. Um, if you've got a manager that lives in your, in your mobile home park, and then you have to fire that manager, like it's like a, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a bad, it's it a bad scenario. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, and then, so, but if you look at it from an investment standpoint too, like, yeah, we want our employees to do well. And yes, we want them to have investment opportunities. But the reality is, is if an investment goes bad and you have <laughs> all 50 of your employees in an investment, the whole reason that the accredited investor rules exist is because it's like, it's the big boy clause, right? Like we know, we know what mm-hmm. we're doing, getting into it. So I think, I think the reason why you don't see more of it, even though it's a noble cause is for those reasons, because yeah. 
you know, I mean, there's a lot of risk in investing and yeah. 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 I mean, even just Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast And trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. There's a, there's a guy that's one of my good buddies, um, and he's, he's a GoBundance guy, and he uh, is based out of Philly. He's probably got about 50, 60 employees, and this is something that he's super passionate about. It's like, how can I help my, not for retention purposes, but just for the sole fact of how can I leverage our verticals of business, our expertise, our you know, network, our access to opportunity to give people who don't have access to opportunity, how can I help these people build more wealth? Not for the sake of, let me retain them, let me make them sticky, but just like, how can I, I care about these people. So how can I leverage what we're doing to help them do? Part of it was that, and he's been trying to crack this code for six plus years. I mean, they have spun up and spent all kinds of money on creating internal education and courses and financial literacy and all this stuff. And he's like, nobody fucking cares. And then no on one wants to do it. nobody wants to actually put in the work to do it. Um, the other side of it is, was, as you know, we kind of alluded to a little bit, is all of the risk and layers of complexity to this, right? If you're just a traditional operating business, I mean, there's really only a couple vehicles of wealth building that you may want to exercise even exploring. But if it's not in your core area of competency, like their core competency was, you know, value add real estate, cash flowing real estate. So that was their expertise. But if you're an operating, you know, business, you're better off just offering all the traditional passive retirement vehicles and not trying to become some expert in managing real estate assets or deploying private money and playing the hard money game, right? Like, because you're just taking your core competency and and focus and now diverting that into another area of risk, of distraction, all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's a really, I think it could and does work for some business models 
and, and business, um, I guess, industries or areas of expertise, but not many. And, and that's where I think you don't see too many people go down that rabbit hole as one, not many people actually care enough to put in the energy and effort. And if something were to go wrong, it's a finger pointing game at how dare yeah. you, you know, take my hard earned money. I don't have a lot of it and piss it away at something that if it doesn't go perfectly right from start to finish, there's way more downside and slippage than there is for the value that you're going to add that you might think is way more yeah. valuable than they actually think is value. Well, and, and again, it's a noble, it's an, it's a noble thought, but like how many of your employees listen to your podcasts? Yeah. Good question. I think less than 5%. Yeah. Like they don't care. They don't want to fucking know. I have real estate, I have real estate agent employees that won't listen to the real estate rock stars when I absolutely believe it is the best thing that any, they're coming to me about like struggling getting things. And I'm like, have you listened, have you been listening to my podcast at all? And it's a no, it's, it's, and how frustrating would it be? I did that a little bit, you know, maybe. That's funny, isn't it? That's ironic. It's, it's ironic. Like, so the, so the reality is, is we have the, one of the best resources in the world for new agents that I, that I run and own. And, pro- and probably because I run and own it is probably part of why they don't like, but it's I, about 10 years ago, I went through the same similar thing where I started to set up, I called it like, um, you know, home rock university where we were like setting up classes for the people. And it was like financial management and things like that. And it was like, Hey, essentially like, I'll give you guys, uh, I'll give you guys raises and bonuses. If you take this like financial management, like Dave Ramsey class. And they were all like, we really would like the raise and the bonus, but we don't think, we don't think you should have to tell us how to manage our money. And, um, and not all my employees are like that. I have some that I know are brilliant and they're buying houses and things like that. But I'm, I remember being really discouraged of like going to this Cameron Herald event and Cameron's a brilliant man and coming back about, hey, I'm going to increase our culture of this. And I went heavy into what Home Rock University was going to be to teach people life skills and like what our listeners of the podcast was want. And so it's very frustrating to try to help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves. So I think so. the short answer of like, maybe they're doing something different over at OpenAI that's creating that. But I also think, again, the whole trade-off and exchange that started the conversation is would your employee risk their life, their well-being, their future, and their income for you? They're not risking it for Sam. They're risking it for open AI, right? Because no one's going to say, I will trade my job for his. Like, hey, like my no. well-being is more important than his. So if you're going to fire him, even though I know Sam Altman's going to get a job, if you're going to fire Sam Altman, I quit. When I'm not guaranteed a job, they aren't doing that for him. No human would do that for another human. They're doing that because they're changing the world. And because the, it, the, like, yeah, would you sacrifice your own life and your own well-being for another person? No, 90% of people won't do that. But they'll do it for a cause. They do it if we're going to land on the moon. Also changed, it could have also changed the dynamic if Satya Nadella didn't say immediately that all you guys are welcome to Microsoft. No problem. If he didn't yeah. open that door, could they have... Would they have really signed a petition? Totally. The the, the other thing. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's not I, sacrificing if you know you're going to get the same job across the street. Well, and and to your point on OpenAI and just all the buzz around it, like just if if OpenAI is on your resume right now, like they could they know they could get a job anywhere. The thing that I think is interesting too, 
And and this just goes back to whether it's Steve Jobs or Sam Altman or, you know, if you look at Jeff Bezos or even Elon Musk to some degree, the thing that's interesting about Elon is he's like a visionary, like obviously, you know, next generation leader, thought leader, but he's also like, he's he's a pretty hardcore manager too. And he's that's tough. what gets a little bit interesting because like, obviously I don't know what, what it looks like inside the kimono, but if you look at like a Steve Jobs, um, you know, visionary thought leader, but he's an asshole too. Like I doubt if very many people, you know, you even said this, like most people stayed at Apple. Most people weren't revolting when, when he got ousted. I'm just wondering too, like how many, that's what I was saying about too. I would love to build a company at some point in time where I get ousted. But the reality is most of the time you've got this visionary leader that people rally behind because they're, they're selling a vision. They're selling a dream which is probably what Sam Altman is doing right now. But is he really a guy that can manage, you know, a, a multi-hundred billion dollar business in the next 10 years? I, I don't know the answer to that, but likely not. They're probably following him because of his dreamer, visionary. But at some point in time, you've got to have somebody come in. And I don't know if this is part of what all this is, but a board an operator that comes in and actually starts putting some rules in place, right? Because yeah. a lot of these tech companies are just a freaking free-for-all. And at some point in time, there has to be some structure too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree I with mean, that. The Facebook founder is still the CEO, right? Zuckerberg's still the CEO and, and, the, and he definitely didn't have CEO experience to run one of the biggest companies in the world. The, I, but, so I there's, think, different, there's different ways to do that. And I think that's a good example of, you know, I think a founder in the case that you're even bringing up, if, if you can put your ego aside and allow strong leadership, even underneath of you or co-leadership, I think this is, I'm, I'm not a fan of co-CEO, but like if, if you can get out of the way and stay in your lane, like Zuckerberg and, and have good leadership and let them do their job as well, then I think it can work forever. I think right. it's He's just a, a rare... Nobody lets the smart people do their thing. I think I mean, the real problem with Sam Altman is, I think if you really look into it, and I can't remember the guy's last name, Phil something from Y Combinator that was the chairman of the board. He said that uh, Sam Altman is really hard to get along with. Hmm. And I think that that's where, I, I think is, you know, if you can work with a board and work with a team and it's not about ego and it's really about, you know, the good of the organization, you can probably stay CEO forever. Well, Elon is not CEO of any of his companies either, which is, uh, he's just the visionary, right? He has female CEOs running every single one of his companies, and he does only what he's the best at, which I'm sure is the same thing with Mark. I don't, I don't know exactly what Mark's day-to-day job is, but it's, mo- it's probably mostly innovation and marketing than it is yeah. about running the day-to-day operations of the business. Um, and I think, I think what I've, what I've personally experienced is that <laughs> there is a, and we've talked about this, Mike, you and I personally is like, there's such a trap in the visionary role. And, but there is this component that you have to run the company and people do need direction and know what you're doing and where you're going. And if you're just the visionary and you're not driving the business, people just fall off. They don't know what to do. It's, and I'm struggling with this now personally is like, in seasons of like, oh, the business is doing well, I don't need to be in people's faces. You can see things kind of fall off. Mm-hmm. People's motivation changes, the dynamics change. 
So yeah, you gotta be, you gotta still run the company, you still gotta drive. And, and there is still this desire for people to want direction. Where are we going? What are we doing? It's, that makes people follow the leader. Anyways, fun stuff. Anything else you guys want to wrap up or you have any fun topics we want to talk about before we wrap up today? Man, I think, uh, in my mind, I think happy Thanksgiving, man, for me, I don't, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a final thought other than adding that gratitude that it's, uh, highlights my week is getting to chat about this stuff and be challenged at the same. Hopefully our listeners after they, as they listen to this stuff go, I hadn't thought about that and thought about it that way. I had a different opinion because I know that when, after I talk to you guys, I feel like I always come out of these going, that was a side and, and a consideration that wasn't on my, on my list. So I appreciate you guys and the ways that we continue to, to challenge each other. Yeah, I'm, same. I'm I'll, I'll wrap up too. I just appreciate the, the thought leadership that's happening in real time here on this podcast. You know, we're really trying to figure out where is the puck going and, Learning how to think differently has been really fun in this journey. And it's one of the main reasons I wanted to make this happen, to challenge our thinking, challenge our patterns. And uh, it's been super fun. I'm excited for the next season. And um, congratulations to all of you for making it happen. And uh, remember, listeners, if you're enjoying, to subscribe to the one and only King's Table on YouTube. Oh my God, we should have we should have did a screen share to show the people, that's, the other guys that started King's Table three months after the impersonator. We did. Comment below too, everybody. Like now, there's a, the benefit of having one location for this podcast. Is there's one location to talk to us. So tell us when you agree. Tell us when you disagree. Tell us who you want us to talk to next. The uh, Morgan Housel told me no this morning. So the, I don't know if one of you guys can get a yes out of him as our, as the next guy we're going to interview or listeners go bug Morgan Housel. Tell him to come get on the King's table for me because he didn't think we were a big enough deal today. How well, dare he? He's going to miss out. Well, Says if the, we could just get the guy who sits on stale money, what does he know? <laughs> yeah. And if we could just get our employees to listen and subscribe, we'd have 200 subscribers by now. Oh so. my God. <laughs> right? It is such a shame. One of my employees did say that she, it was tough to find. So we're going to make sure that the, uh, we're the easiest YouTube one to find by next week. So, but guys, comment, share, tell us what you think. We'll talk back. We appreciate you. Yeah. Hey, if guys, you don't go subscribe and, and comment, we're going to have to turn this back into a podcast. All right, guys. Love you. Good, good show. Bye, guys. 